I'm there to achieve an expression, an expression of that grape that we're crushing, that varietal that we're crushing. I'm always looking for complexity and looking for balance for something that could be evocative. Welcome back to Inkadoo. This is your host, Dana Elmquist. In this episode, we'll hear from a new voice at the winery, Hannah Jacobs, who worked with Phil for the past two summers in the field and in the facility. Starting this month, she's taken on the role of marketing manager. But before we talk with Hannah, let's catch up with these Pinot grapes. Here's Matt and Phil at Inkadoo. So here we have our grape must going in the tank. And the full berries are already in there. So this and all the others, this is the must. This is the somewhat smashed up grapes. Yeah. All their skins, all their seeds are in there mixed with the juice. And so that's what's being collected here. That's what we sort everything before we made this. And then over there, you see all the stems, which are incredibly, amazingly, efficiently removed. Amazing. Uh, we don't want to ferment the stems because they have more of a woody character to it that, that we don't want to have. This is two days old here. So smell that. Mm-hmm. Still smells very grapey. Yeah. Woo. So now this is starting to ferment. This is a little over a week. Ooh, so yeah. we, we get a yeah. little EA, which yeah. is ethyl acetate. Yeah. Um, that's normal. What happens in the production of ethyl acetate, the EA that you've produced will blow off during fermentation. This will actually will probably another day, this will be gone. And Pinot Noir, it will ferment so fast. I've had one tank go from 24 now to three bricks in one day. 21 three bricks drop in one day, which is it's the highest I've ever seen. It's incredible. Wow. But most of the time, it's just about four bricks a day for this stuff. Pinot, maybe five. For Pinot Noir, we'd hardly do any rackings. Maybe do one racking, which means we transfer from the barrels to a tank and then back to the barrel. Racking just means transfer. You're transferring from a barrel to barrel, barrel to tank, tank to barrel, tank to tank. You're just taking it off the solids. So I might take it off some of the solids early on, but I want a lot of the yeast to remain in the bottom of the barrel, like you do with white wines, because there is a number of components that you can get from doing a little bit of aging on yeast for Pinot Noir. I don't do that at all for my heavier reds because yeast, when they break down, can scavenge color. And I don't want them to scavenge um, any of my color off the, my big reds. What you get out of having it on yeast, and we do, we'll stir the barrels every once in a while, is that when the yeast cells break down, which is called autolysis, the manoproteins that are released, they have some body to them, but they also do a, a very natural fining. In other words, that they will combine with some harsh tannins and really soften the wines. Having a little bit of yeast in the Pinot really contributes to a number of positive results. After about a year, could be maybe a little bit longer, it's time to bottle. My dad and Phil's wife are cousins. And one summer, she came to visit and she mentioned that her husband had a winery which my parents had never told me about, funnily enough. She mentioned that he needed a tasting room associate, so I decided to come down and learn about wine from Phil. I was in the tasting room, I was on the production side a little bit, and then in this 2023 harvest, as we increased production, I came on to help Phil, and as I met with the team, it was just a great fit. And so Catherine brought me on in the marketing manager capacity, but I still will be working in several different facets of the business. 
I found out that Phil has so much knowledge of this industry going back, you know, into the 80s. But he also is always learning, always changing, always adapting. And so it's really cool to learn from him because you can learn about the traditions and you can also learn about the cutting edge of wine. He is interested in all kinds of wines, not just the big heavy reds. So I personally love that because as a young wine drinker, I'm interested in different kinds of wines and he's a wealth of information on all different kinds. We are now entering the barrel room. Much different temperature in here. It's definitely important to layer when you're in the winery. On a sunny day when you're outside cleaning the barrels or as you walk into the winery and back into the barrel room, you quickly get a chill. As you walk into the barrel cellar, you'll find it's gonna, the temperature's gonna drop about 10, 15 degrees. We've already done all the work of fermenting the wines and getting them to the state where they are. So we wanna minimize microbial activity. And that's why they're so cold. In our case, walking into the barrel cellar, it's my favorite place. It smells so good. I mean, you have the oak, you have the, the wine accenting, and it's peaceful. It's quiet. You know, you should be playing classical music in there. There's a certain amount of feel to it as well, because humidity creates a weight. I don't know, it, it kind of wraps its arms around you when you walk into a barrel cellar. Yeah, we age the wines there. We do a little bit of work in there as well. It sits in the barrel racks. If you have low humidity, it will transpire as a lot of water out of your wine. And so if you do that, then your alcohols go up. So if you have higher humidity, first off, your barrels don't dry out as much if you have empty barrels, but, but you tend to have less evaporation of water and your alcohols won't go sky high. My previous winery I used to work in, this cellar was 100% humidity, so our wines would drop about almost a full point alcohol by the time we bottled. It's a great winemaking tool, as opposed to having to have somebody filter your wines to get out the alcohol. No, just put them in a nice 100% humidity cellar. There's a, definitely a certain amount of communing with your barrels. They're sitting in there as they're aging. And you've experienced this barrel, and the wine in this one barrel is actually tasting a little bit different than the wine in the other barrels, of the same lot even. And so you start recognizing one barrel from the other, which is kind of fun, kind of eerie, I guess. You know. <laughs> but it's wonderful. Yeah, so these are all of our barrels. Each barrel is near about 225 liter. And those are the Bordeaux barrels, a little bit longer, not quite as high, versus the Burgundy barrels, which are a little bit fatter, a little shorter, and those are also 228 liters. Approximately 25 cases of wine comes out of a barrel. So we spoke a little bit earlier, Matt and I did, about how long we keep our barrels and how long we'll be able to get oak out of that as a character. I generally classify my barrels as new, still having some kind of oak character that we will extract uh, into the wine. And then we have what we call neutral, and neutral is just that. It's, there's no importation of uh, any kind of oak character. Would that happen after it's been used several times? So going into the fourth use, we're getting a lot more oak now compared to what we used to. We steam barrels, and so when we steam barrels, after they steam for five minutes, we will put a bung in it, and after you do that, as the barrel cools, it creates a suction, creates a vacuum, and you're actually extracting from deep in the wood older grape wine that's in the staves themselves in the wood, but also you're bringing out oak, and so we are finding that we're getting oak character in a three- and four-year-old barrel, which is good. For a lot of our wines, we don't necessarily need to buy as many new barrels. You might find Phil climbing around the racks to reach a barrel that I can't reach with a ladder. <laughs> I, you won't find me doing that anytime yeah. soon. But <laughs> Hopefully I'm using a ladder and I'm actually not like jumping on top of the barrels that are 15, 18 feet high. So. Yeah. There's a couple barrels there that are a lot bigger than the other ones. Why is that? Well, they made them that way. 
<laughs> yes. Um, so these are 500 liter, what we call punchins, a little bit more than double the size of a, a normal barrel. The reason I use this, there is less surface to air, so the wines can be protected from air a little bit better. It's also thicker staves, and so again, there's more protection of these wines. So th these are wines that I want to have on oak. I want to have a barrel fermentation, but I also want to preserve a little more of the aromatics as well. So Sauvignon Blanc is what I really like using these on. When it comes to reds, Grenache has always been one of those, uh, the aromatics of Grenache. Grenache can be pretty big wines, but they also have these wonderful, really crushed red fruit aromatics that you really like to retain. And so that's just a real traditional thing that I try to observe here. So Phil, mm -hmm. the barrels, you said some are coming from Eastern Europe, some are coming from France. We talked a little bit about what they're made of. Yeah, so these are all white oak, but they also are using acacia wood now, uh, which is really nice on some, like Sauvignon Blanc and also on rosés. Acacia is beautiful. And probably we'll put that into the program starting next year. And once you have this, the structure, the integrity will keep wine in the barrel, won't leak. Then you look at, okay, what source? White oak, United States, white oak all over Europe, Crocus Kiriana, Crocus Alba. We're looking for barrels that are going to impart the type of flavor profile that I'm looking for. Really nice toastiness in these barrels, like a toasted oak, but also spice too, nutmeg, a little bit of mace. The vanillin is really nice and subtle, and as important is the texture. So some barrels can be really harsh, like biting into a newly sawn piece of oak, bitter and astringent and just really nasty and green. But it's the reason why I don't use American oaks because they tend to be a little bit more coarse, a lot of lactone characteristics that you associate with bourbon. They've come a long ways and are doing a pretty good job, but it's not something that fits in our program. We trialed these for many, many years and arrived at certain providers of French oak. So not all French oak providers are the same, not all forests are the same, and it's also how they handle their wood. So it takes time. You might see some kegs in the barrel room too and be confused yeah. as to why, if that's the beer to help fuel the winemaker or what's going on there, but we actually store yeah, some <laughs> excess wine that we use for topping. Yeah, virtually just about every group walks in and they'll say, oh, why do you have those kegs there? I have wine in, in kegs because we, we broke it down a barrel and we can't leave wine in a partial barrel because it'll oxidize. Barrels respire naturally. And because that headspace that is within a barrel is just a perfect area for oxidation and potentially the growth of microbes as well. And so what we do to protect the wines is to put them into stainless steel kegs and from there we actually will top the wines as well. Today we were processing the Pinot, yeah. right? And a year from today, give or take, mm -hmm. we're going to take that Pinot out of the barrel, we're going to bottle it, but we might also blend it with right. other Pinots to get it right. So the Peters Vineyard, that's an outstanding Pinot Noir Vineyard, we bottle up a certain amount of Pomard as a single vineyard designate and it's just one clone from that vineyard. But I also like to use a portion of that in the blend of our Russian River blend. And our Russian River blend can have three or four different vineyards that are involved in there. I like a heavy dose of Dijon. I like the brightness. I think that's where Russian River really shines. I like that bright red fruit, the cranberry, raspberry, strawberry type of components, a little bit of Asian spice sometimes, and a little bit of herb. But I also like the underbelly of earthiness that's just there and it just creates such a layer of complexity, but it really is like a foundation. So arguably our most popular blend or maybe most known is the Humbaba, but the Sauvignon Blanc is a blend, Cab is a blend, and the Russian River Valley. Yeah, I would say for a good 50% of our wines, they're, they're blends. And a blend doesn't have to be multiple varietals to be a blend. It could be a blend of two different vineyards. 
three different vineyards. Bill, can you describe the Sauvignon Blanc blend and what goes into it? Yeah, so the Sauvignon Blanc blend is typically at least two different vineyards. So these two different vineyards will have different clones of, of Sauvignon Blanc, but they're going to be Sauvignon Blanc from different regions. I'm looking for characteristics of one that is going to have maybe a little bit more spice to it, and the one's going to have maybe more pit fruit. Then there's going to be, again, a little bit of difference in textures. Following that, the Pinots, specifically the Russian River Valley blend, and then also maybe the breakdown and percentages that are required for your vineyard designate. We produce wines out of three high-level vineyards in Russian River Valley. We make a vineyard designate out of all three of them, and a vineyard designate has to be 95% from that vineyard. Uh, I'm always holding back a certain amount for the Russian River blend. And the Russian River blend is gonna be multi-clonal. There could be as many as four to five different clones. And it's gonna include wines basically from all three vineyards at different proportions. I want something like the Pomard clones, a little bit of the dead, a little bit of the living you know, aspect of it. That's what I love about Pomard is that you know, it has this earthiness, a little bit of barnyard type of characteristic and spice, broad shoulders. And the Pomard, by adding that in with the Dijon, gets lifted to another level. Kind of plays off the floral red fruit character spicy character that you get from some of the Dijon clones. There are three vineyards. And so there's three different clones that comes out of one vineyard, another couple that comes out of another vineyard. So overall, we're looking at four to five different clones that come out of three different vineyards that we're using for making our, our blend for the Russian River blend. And they can grow quite differently, to my understanding, too. Yeah. When we were sampling, yeah. like the difference in maturity and mm -hmm. bricks. We certainly saw that in 2021, which when Hannah and I were out there, we'd see some vineyards that were struggling mightily. They could be weeks apart as far as harvest, and it could be the same clone. And so sight really has a lot to do with it. Hannah, you want to chime in on that? When we would first start, Phil would show me or hand me a map of each vineyard, and we would go and sample the different grapes. And it's a funny process. First of all, figuring out if you're in the right area, then making sure you're collecting grapes that have had different sun exposure, leaf exposure, avoiding areas that are affected by trees that may grow. It's kind of hard to visualize how large an Appalachian might be and then a sub-Appalachian within that. So all of these Russian River Valley Pinot Noir vineyards that we source from, they are actually quite far apart. We would start at Laris towards the north, right off the 101, and then we would head down through some beautiful roads to Tina Marie, and then down to Peters to finish it off. So as the crows flies, they're not that far apart, but through the little back roads, it can take a while. And that's one of the reasons why I do like Russian rivers. So they're pretty consistent in what they express, but you're going to have differences in how they grow. I mean, the exposure to the sun, the orientation towards the sun, wind, fog, even though it's all Russian river, the same exact clones express themselves differently. Hannah, you were talking about how the ripening can be so much different. You know, we're talking about the same clones and it's in the same region, but because the irrigation of the plant life that's around it, specifically trees that can shade the vineyard, and these all have an effect upon the growing season and as fruit ripens. As we move on to cab, that also ties into that conversation. When we are in the mountain vineyards, they can be very different depending on their orientation and their steepness. Yeah. Um, so sometimes when Phil and I are out sampling together, I'll give him the steeper area, the more difficult area <laughs> to sample. But Phil, can you talk about our three cabs, our Sonoma County cab, our High Mayacamas cab, and our Onsar? Mm -hmm. Are these all blends? Uh, these are all blends. You know, whereas Pinot Noir, I'm not going to blend them with other varietals. Cabernet, on the other hand, I am. In the vineyards that are high up and at elevation, like the High Mayacamas, 
all that is all mountain fruit. And so that's a really big wine with a lot of more stringency, more tannin to it, but it's also very, very deep. Whereas the Sonoma County Cabernet, it has a lot of valley fruit from the valley floor of Sonoma Valley. But with that wine in particular, I really want to have that wine reach a certain level of structure. And so I use Petit Syrah and Petit Syrah is a wonderful blend. It's not traditionally a Bordeaux varietal, you might say. In California, it's been used as a blender with Cab for decades. And I use a small amount, I'd say five to 7%, but it really provides that backbone that all the other flavors, aroma, I mean, everything kind of hangs on this and gives it length to the very end. With Cabernet, you're really kind of building a wine with that as opposed to maybe some other varietals. When you're making the Onsar, do you change by the year which vineyard you might source primarily from and the developing flavors or how do you decide what will be in the Onsar? Onsar is a little bit different than the other two wines. Onsar, it's going to be wines that I feel are the highest quality, but also clump on the, each other. I don't use any Petit Syrah. It's going to be strictly Cabernet. I have used Cabernet Franc 2023 specifically, like we just harvested. Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc will be probably going into the Onsar because they're super high quality and they offer such wonderful aromatics. I want power and elegance in the Onsar, the velvet glove that holds the sword. And you know, I want that wine to really be the pinnacle of what we make. There are some lots, there's some vineyards that, I'm, that traditionally have been going into it. So I will do what we call a Sagne, and we've spoken about this before. And, and then virtually I've, I've pretty much just started doing Sagnes on all of our reds anyways. For certain vineyards, I'll do even more really to concentrate that fruit because I know it's for the most part, it's gonna go into the Ansar. If I were a grape, I'd wanna be a mountain grape up in those <laughs> vineyards that we visit. They're so beautiful. So yeah. one day we'll take a wine club field trip. <laughs> the mountains in and around the North Coast are just absolutely stunning. And then moving on to Humbaba. Right. Some years it's a mix of four different varietals and then others it's a mix of just two. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Back in the early mid 80s, I came across a wine that was Syrah, Petit Syrah and became enamored with that blend. And so in 2006, I had a lot of Syrah and I had a lot of Petit Syrah. <laughs> so in the back of my mind, I say, I, I think this is the time to produce this wine. The Humbaba has become a fan favorite for our no. club members. I always ask customers if they're Humbaba people, specifically wine club members. And yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of them. Yeah. Typically, it's been Grenache and Mouvet that I've used in anywhere between 2%, 3% of Mouvet, maybe 8% or so of Grenache. Uh, Humbaba is possibly the most complex wine, both in flavors and aromas. And, and people just love to say the name anyways. <laughs> you make a individual varietal of each of the wines that go into the Humbaba, which especially for the Grenache and the Mouvet, that's pretty unheard of, right? Yeah. At least in this region. Yeah. Yeah. You don't find too much of that. A real typical blend, let's say in Southern Rhone, is going to be really heavily Grenache with Syrah and Mouved, a GSM of Grenache, Syrah, Mouved. In our case, we also have Petit Syrah. I mean, France claims that they don't have any more Petit Syrah. Well, the real name is Darif, hmm. um, created by Dr. Darif in the 1880s. I still believe they have plantings there because I swear I've had wines out of the <laughs> middle round that taste just like Petit Syrah. They're wonderful wines. Wow. But that being said, you don't see that many blends with Syrah and Petit Syrah. For me, it, I think that they go wonderfully together. Yeah. It's really a marriage made in taste heaven. And to me, adding the, the Grenache 
is there like a spice rack? Well, I'm always thinking about cooking and the aromas and the flavors that you get you know, when you're cooking and using the spices to create a nuance, enhance the main meal. And I, so I look at Mouved that way as well. Mouved gives me a, a little bit of that rusticity, scorched earth, saddle leather type of characteristic. And I get this more of this blueberry, uh, more fresh, uh, spicy type of fruit, um, let's say from, from Grenache. Yeah. Those are kind of the little nuances that we get from that. So yeah, it's a good blend. I love in the hubbaba. That's one of my personal favorites also, but I didn't necessarily know specifically what I loved about it. And then what's cool about Phil's winemaking is that he actually has a moved you can try, a ganache you can try, a petite syrah you can try, and a syrah you can try. So you can see what it is that you liked about each of them and then how they work together in the hubbaba. As a new wine drinker, you can kind of get intimidated by the different varietals, what they mean, if you should get a glass of that at the restaurant you're at, or you don't want to buy a bottle if you're unsure about maybe a certain bridal. So I think it's a really cool way to experience them all. Yeah, I want people to drink and, ex and spread their wings, you might say. By doing blends, you kind of initiate people to some varietals maybe they haven't had before. Part of the allure of Ankadu uh, is that you we have so many different wines that are made in small batches. You can venture, you can explore. Sometimes people will see me in the barrel room helping Phil and they'll ask me, is this your aspiration? Would you like to be a winemaker in the future? And as I've learned from him, being a winemaker is actually a collection of maybe 15 at minimum jobs. You know, you have to learn how to drive the forklift, be a weatherman, a driver, scientist, be accessible to the public. You have to be an artist. You have to produce at the end of the day an amazing product. As with artists who only have one medium that they use, even though grapes are one medium, every year they might be slightly different. So you have to work with the nuances of them to figure out how to best express what they bring to the table that year. So you're looking at art. Sorry to all the engineers who are winemakers that say, well, there's no art in winemaking. Then you haven't gone out and learned your vineyard and know when to pick and know the aspects of what you're looking for. It's not about numbers, it's about a feel. With art, whether it is painting, poetry, blowing glass, whatever my expression is, you're hoping that your portrayal of that art is going to be accepted if you want to do it commercially. As a winemaker, it's my take on these different varietals in this winemaking style. And in this case, yeah, I mean, I want my wines to sell. I'm not just making so much for me to drink on my own. You're hoping to appeal to a broad cross-section of, of people who drink your wine. And if you're well-received, then fantastic, fabulous. But I mean, if you're making wine and you think it's fantastic, you just may have a really bad palate, dude. <laughs> Next episode, we'll dive deep into the chemistry of wine with Professor Matt, the history behind Sonoma winemaking with Phil and sommelier Chris Sawyer, and the many ways people pair food and wine. Until then, cheers. Cheers.